Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, let's bring in Robert Sinch. He's with Amherst Pierpont. Bob, we've been talking through the morning about where we are. Is it a good time to take advantage of the volatility that's coming, or is that a risky business? Pros love movement in the market. That's where you make money. Things have been quiet, supposedly. Is it going to be more volatile into the end of the year? I think we are going to see significant uh, increases in volatility as we go forward. I think a couple of things are driving it. One, is, is is obviously the potential that the Fed will finally hike rates, and that always tends to create some volatility. Uh, second is we have not only the election here, we have discussions about Greek uh, fiscal policy coming up later this year with the EU potential there. We have a big referendum in Italy coming up about uh, the future governance there and what that implies for, for uh, reforms going forward. Uh, we have ongoing reform processes in a number of places, Brazil, around the world. So I think there are some catalysts as we go into the latter part of the year. And, of course, mm -hmm. central banks, I think, is another big one. I, I think central banks really are beginning to push back right. against this notion that they can continue to, to solve all uh, the world's problems. David wants to go big and wide. Let me go narrow right now. Is there a Monday trade from Robert Sinch? I mean, is there something that just screams? Because you, 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 know, you do some great obscure stuff, yen, loony, loony, yen, and that. Is there something that sticks out right now? You know, we we, we talked uh, a couple of weeks ago about um, uh, the movement down in the peso, and we thought that that to take out the oil play, um, you know, we could be um, short Canada long peso or short Russian ruble short peso. Um, uh, you know, I think we've had a, a pretty good rebound now in the Mexican peso from around 20 down to under 19. I think that trade is is played out for now. I, I still think we're going higher in the dollar. Um, and I think we could see, you know, dollar yen higher. We could see uh, euro dollar lower. So uh, I do think this is a, an environment where the dollar is going to do better. And we should look at the dollar versus uh, a basket of foreign currencies right Bob, now. Tom mentioned this is a Monday, a chance to regroup after what happened last week. Let's talk about the flash crash, what we saw in Sterling uh, a few days hence now. What's your reaction to what happened there? What, what, what conclusion should we draw from what happened there? You know, in the foreign exchange world, there is this, uh, because it's an over-the-counter market, uh, and there is this strange time between the close in New York and the real opening time in Asia. Um, now, this was 20 years ago when I used to manage money, but we used to leave overnight orders to go into the Asian session. We would specifically limit no transactions between 5 p.m. and 7 p.m. New York time because we knew there was tremendous illiquidity going into this New Zealand-Australian marketplace. 
that's when we had this volatility again the other night. And, uh, you know, I would have thought the markets had grown up from that. But there is still that awkward period between the New York close and the Singapore-Hong Kong open when you can often get these very volatile moves in markets. And I think that's what we saw the other so night. So your sense there is it was a liquidity issue, nothing, nothing more? I think it was a liquidity issue. We may find out in some earnings reports that there was a, some errors made somewhere along the way. Um, but clearly, it was it was such a disorderly move that you have to mm. chalk this up to to illiquidity and probably an error that somebody will will fess up to at some point in the future. I'm embarrassed, Bob, that I didn't bring this up earlier this morning. But let's cover it right now. I noticed obviously weak sterling, but just in the last week, weak euro as well. It's almost like a little wind shifting here. Sterling dollar is cable. Euro sterling is the cross the channel feel. Which do you look at? Which matters here? Well, I think again, this becomes is this a just a move down for sterling, or is this a move up for the dollar? Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen dollar yen back up above 103. It held that 100 level back at 103. We've seen euro dollar come below 112. We've seen sterling obviously move lower. At what point do we start? talking about a stronger dollar rather than just a weak cable. And I think we're at that point right now. You know, if you look at at five-year interest rate differentials around the world, you know, five-year swap rate in the U.S. relative to five-year swap rates in, in other major countries, and you weight that by the weightings of the dollar index, the DXY, this is the widest differential in favor of the dollar this year. So quietly over the last couple of weeks, interest rate differentials really have shifted back in favor of the dollar. And suddenly it's the dollar moving higher rather than sterling moving lower. But then the euro goes with sterling. What I'm, in, what I'm seeing as an amateur is euros becoming attached to sterling. Is that a wrong assessment? I think it's more that the dollar is moving higher. And the euro actually I think is, is, is holding up better Right. Um, than I would have expected it. And this David, point. this is really important, and this is the compensating factors of different currency pairs. One of the biggest mistakes I see in foreign exchange analysis is we don't look at them as pair trades. And there's a set of pair trades. And of course, David, you had memorized permutations <laughs> and combinations. Yes. I mean, I mean, Dave, do you know that David's from Brooklyn? And, and Bob, he learned permutations and combinations <laughs> growing kale on his roof. Because he knows there's like eight. We're making if, hybrid blends have, up on the roof. Yeah, yeah hybrid <laughs> blends of kale. It's the same way in foreign exchange, Dave. I'm a modern day Mendel. Let me ask you more about the peso. I, as I mentioned, you had this great note: uh, Mexico and oil not connected here. The, you know, we, we had the debate last night. We've been tracking the peso with Donald Trump's poll ratings, with Hillary Clinton's poll ratings. You have sort of a novel look at what we're seeing there. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know there are, there are two different time frames to look at. Right, and I think that um, the rebound in oil had not been showing up in the peso, um, primarily because of this uncertainty about the election outcome. Um, and as we pull that away, you sort of get back to fundamentals. And and uh, you know, in the short run, there is so little going on in these markets these days, and so few drivers in the foreign exchange markets that traders are willing to to basically jump on anything that's moving. And so I think the the notion of this, um, you know, Trump 
victory probability and movements in the peso really caught on in the markets. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If people think that other people are going to trade dollar peso based on the election movements, then they'll start doing it. And it feeds on itself. And that works until it doesn't. And I have a feeling that, you know, obviously over the next three weeks, we're going to find out that it, or four weeks, that it doesn't work anymore because we've, we've passed the election. But I think we're starting to, to do that. And I think that part of what the, the movement, the big movement up in the peso in the last week or so has been a realization that, hey, you know, energy prices have gone up, oil prices have gone up. We've completely forgot about this relationship with oil. And now I think there's a bit of a catch up move going on. Robert Cinch with his Amherst Pierpont. Update us on the institution that is this Federal Reserve System. Mr. Trump wants to go after this institution and that. Would President Trump change the Fed? You know, I think one of the concerns, you know, I have a couple of concerns about central banks. One, that I think they've played their hands as far as they can, and they really are running out of options and anything that's really going to affect the economies and inflation going forward. The second is this little bubbling up of intrusion on central bank independence. We've seen a little bit of it in Japan where people around Prime Minister Abe have been making comments about how the BOJ needs to continue to to take more action. Um, I'm not sure what's really left for them to do. That's a big demographic problem they're facing in Japan. Uh, We've seen Prime Minister May in the UK make a couple of, of pretty shocking statements. One of them was uh, about the the side effects of central bank actions, I'm not exactly sure what the implication of that was. And now I think you know we we certainly saw last night that that Mr. Trump said he would instruct, you know, a uh, attorney general, right? an attorney general to look into Hillary Clinton's. I mean, this is kind of unprecedented stuff. You wonder what he would instruct the Treasury Secretary to do about monetary policy. So I think there is. This concern that after holding up monetary policy is the real savior for the global economies, that now that they're running on empty uh, and fiscal policy is nowhere to be seen, that they start encroaching more on monetary policy. Um, and, and I think it's a concern about central bank independence going forward. We had Stan Fisher, the vice chair, speak yesterday, Janet Yellen speaking at the Boston Fed later this week. Do you think that the, the, the Yellen Fed could be doing more to emphasize this point, that it is not subject to political wins? You, you, you hear it from the outside. You hear economists defending it. But um, we haven't heard explicitly from Chair Janet Yellen, at least uh, n- not, not explicitly and not in quantity, a, a lot here about the independence of the Fed. You know, knowing some people who have been with the Fed, my guess is they're pretty baffled by mm. this. I, I think they're sitting there going, wait a second, we're the only ones who have been acting here. Um, we, are, we are not political in our decision process, although they've been accused of that. Um, and, and I think that, that they get a little surprised that these things even bubble up like this. Um, will probably get a bit defensive about it, circle the wagons as they normally do. Um, but I think part of this is they, they brought it on themselves by their rhetoric of talking about, about normalizing policy and then not doing it. A whole segment of the American population that is wondering why they saved and why they're not getting any return on those savings uh, for retirement. So I think a lot of, of, of tensions are bubbling up. And again, because fiscal policy around the world has been so non-participatory in this process, what do people do? They keep focusing back on the monetary authorities around the world um, as, as miracle workers. And I think they need to keep pushing back and saying they've done what they can do. Mm.
I I, uh, I wonder, uh, as you look ahead, there's so much scuttlebutt here that Lael Brannard might be a Hillary Clinton Treasury Secretary, for instance. Is this going to preclude that from happening, do you think, if, if Hillary Clinton were to be elected? No, I don't think so. Okay. I think that, that um, um, you know, there, there may be some concern about – we used to worry about movements between the Fed and, and Wall Street. Now they have movements right. between the Fed Within and the, the Treasury. Yeah. But I think that, that once somebody leaves the Fed – um, you know, their ID doesn't work at the doors anymore. Uh, they can't get ready access. So I don't think that's a, a tremendous issue. I, I think, you know, clearly there was a it was a very political appointment uh, to, the, to, to, to have her participating in the uh, in the Federal Reserve System. So, you know, I think that that, uh, you know, that might actually be a little bit healthier in terms of reestablishing the, mm. the, uh, the the apolitical nature of the Fed. Mm. Uh, Bob Saints, thank you so much for the honors, Pierpont. Greatly appreciate Appreciate your attendance on Columbus. Good to have you. Good to be here. here. David, my favorite tweet last night was from a woman. Well, there was the one from Jason over at the Journal who said, my television just threw itself out the window. Let's just go with that for now as we bring in Greg Vallier. Greg, Horizon Investments, your, your notes have been absolutely fabulous. And to keep the baseball thing going, Mr. Vallier, Mr. Trump needed a home run and he hit a double. Was it a legit double off the wall or was it a ground rule double in Yankee Stadium? <laughs> Hi, Tom. Good morning. No, I think it was a legit double. I think he really energized his base, which he had to do. They're going to turn out. If it's windy and raining in Ohio, they're turning out. And I think you know, he spoke to them. Did he add any new support? Well, that's the issue. I'm not sure he did. Let me bring it over to Secretary Clinton. The FT had a great chart the other day of a certain blue-collar county in Ohio. She's got to get marginal voters. With a weekend she had, can she do that? Yeah, I think she can. I think that uh, I would say the weekend Trump had, you know, I'm not sure he's going to bring a lot of those voters uh, either. You know, the, the, if you step back just for a second and look at the forest rather than the trees, I mean, the forest is there's been massive defections among Republicans who are really worried now that they not only would lose the Senate, but they might even lose the House as well. So you've got a really anxious party. I'm not sure one pretty good debate performance by Trump is going to change that. Greg, what do you make of the degree to which that tape, which was released on, on Friday afternoon, published by the Washington Post, played a role in this debate? I look back on what happened last night. You can almost cut the debate in two. Uh, there was the first 30 minutes, which I would say was very contentious, and it played a, a major role there. Is it something that Secretary Clinton came back to, though, at, at the end of the debate? Uh, a sigh of relief from the Trump campaign that this is now uh, at least in part behind him? What, what do you make of how it played out in the debate? It's in part behind him, assuming there are no additional disclosures. And I am not willing to make that prediction. I think that there could be more bombshells uh, for both of them, with her from WikiLeaks, with him, with taxes. I'm not sure the New York Times has released all that they have. And, of course, with him and other women. So we've got an, another month of this cringe-inducing campaign to go, and I think there's going to be more disclosures. Greg, you mentioned the defections on the Republican side. What was it about this tape, about these comments in particular, that were so distasteful? Yes, the, the, the vulgarity for sure, but, but uh, there will be those who say this is nothing new. We, we, we knew at least what Donald Trump was like, if not what he is like. Why, why did this happen now? 
Well, I'd say two things. Number one, what he described doing is a felony, last time I checked. Number two, I think that uh, a lot of Republicans who said, oh, my God, he's talked about groping women. I think their real concern, as I said earlier, is that they could lose Congress. I mean, they're looking at potentially a really ugly election Mm -hmm. outcome. I think that motivated a lot of the defections. Help me here, Greg. Uh, with with all that we've observed in the in, in the final 20 days of the election, there was a whisper of a moment last night where Secretary Clinton shifted from the dance over to I will represent all Americans. And I turned to someone I was watching the debate with and said, that's the first moment where she's speaking to all the voters and not just the usual constituencies. Did you sense that or does that wait October 19th? Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I think Tom that in the last week or two, when you make your closing pitch, the candidates usually get a lot more bipartisan, yeah. appeal to, appeal teary-eyed, to and cue the music. Yeah, appealing to our better <clears throat> angels. I'm, we're not we're not there yet. I think we got a ways to go before we hear <laughs> that kind of talk. Okay, David, to put it, the, the tweet I loved last night as Mr. Vallier speaks to the better angels was the woman who said, "Look, it's like Game of Thrones. You tell the kids go do something. You close the door." <laughs> You turn the volume down, and you have your thumb on the remote control oh. if the kids come in the room. That's what the beginning of the debate yes. was like last night. I'm wondering, wondering what was going to happen. Greg, talk about the undecidedness in the room. I mean, it's, it's, it seems funny. This campaign has gone on for so long, many, many months now. You have a room of, of undecided voters. I'd say that the, the voters who were on stage with the two candidates didn't actually ask many questions. I think that the two candidates took, a lot of, took care of a lot of the back and forth themselves there. But how real is the undecided factor right now? I don't think it's that big anymore. Maybe there's still five, six, seven percent of the electorate that could be swayed, but it, it's dwindling. And I'm not sure. You know, one of the big takeaways from last night is that I'm not sure they moved the needle that much. You know, Trump again really rallied his base there, motivated to vote for him. But I, I think among these undecideds, there, there's one issue, if I might. There's one issue that still has to be addressed, and that's pro-growth. I've been harping on this for a long time. I think that her agenda, more regulations and you know, more higher taxes, is not pro-growth. I think if Trump realized that, he could make some inroads there. Does he have a campaign staff? And I, I say this, folks, I mean, you know, full disclosure, I was outside the Trump Tower uh, yesterday. And, Greg, it was such a zoo with a naked <laughs> cowboy and the rest of it. We, we went across the street and around it because we didn't want cherubs to see it. And and help me here. Does he have a campaign staff? Well, you look at some of the key states, and you have to talk about the ground game. It's kind of arcane, but uh, those of us who are really into this would tell you that in a lot of key states like Florida, he had a bunch of amateurs working for him, poorly funded, have never really worked on campaigns. Her ground game is really good, and in a close election, it could be worth half a point. Yeah. Half, half a half point. Half a point. Important. Yeah, half a point's important in a close state. Greg, there was a moment during the debate when my jaw dropped, Martha Raddatz asking about Syria, and what emerged was a real disconnect between one Donald Trump and one Mike Pence. Uh, She pointed out that they've said two different things about what the the course of action should be uh, in that country with regard to to Russia's participation, uh, and (laughs) Donald Trump allowed that it was something that he and Mike Pence had, had not discussed. As I said uh, last hour, 85 days in here, these two have been running mates. And, and is it, how surprising is it to you here that this isn't something that's come up? 
I think it's a big deal, David. I mean, first of all, I think over the weekend, Pence was aghast over that tape uh, and the sexual stuff. Uh, he's a conservative Christian, and I think that uh, Trump threw him under the bus last night on Syria very dismissively and curtly. So there's not, not a lot of love between the two. There's been rumors yeah. that Pence might leave the ticket. I don't think he's going anywhere, because if he endures this for another month, he becomes one of the front runners in 2020. Well, that's right where I wanted to go. And the final question we have, Mr. Villiers, is Mr. Pence and Mr. Ryan and the others, are they just positioning themselves for Greg Villiers' New Hampshire <laughs> primary to come? <laughs> Well, I think if you gave most of them truth, sir, and they would tell you that they're all already thinking past this election. Yeah. They're thinking about the, the next one. Pence is going to be a player, Ryan, Rubio, maybe Cruz. Uh, a big cast of characters, I think, are secretly rooting for Trump to lose. Great briefing, and I'm sure we'll have much more. Greg Villiers, your notes are more than valuable. Folks, again, we get many emails on Mr. Villiers' paperwork. We, do, we protect the copyright of all of our guests. Please contact Horizon Investments for the, uh, the, the chiseled granite slabs that Mr. Villiers <laughs> puts out every uh, moment. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. It is wonderful to pause now after the droppeth in gold of a week or so ago. James Steele writes brilliant notes for HSBC on the bigger picture on gold, not the minutia of companies and all that, but just the bigger view. James, it's golden week in China, and then China comes back. You notice a pulse of demand in India. With all the ballet of China, is there a pulse to acquire gold in China? I think, yes. Uh, there's been a considerable decline um, between uh, when they uh, went on Golden Week uh, and now. So merchants and traders, as they've come back to their desks uh, and back to their businesses uh, this morning, will have been greeted with a substantially lower gold price. And uh, definitely those reacting to the to consumer demand uh, will, I, I suspect, uh, uh, seek to uh, purchase bullion around these these prices. That's not to say that the the, the washout is is over, but I, but I definitely think that um, uh, the physical demand in the Far East will will react to this. James, what's the biggest driver uh, of gold right now? Is it is it uh, speculation about Fed policy? Is it the election? Where where are you seeing drivers of growth? Yes, I would say it's the Fed policy angle, um, and that feeds through into the currencies. Um, <clears throat> a secondary but important one is uh, uh, the election. And I think as we run up closer to the election, that'll be increasingly important. Uh, it's interesting to note that um, gold has been relatively inured to changes in the polls um, between uh, uh, Trump closing on Hillary or Hillary opening up against uh, 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 Mr. Trump. Uh, gold ha doesn't seem to have reacted much to that. It's been much more sensitive, however, to 
uh, uh, comments from officials at the Federal Reserve. I, I was looking at um, sort of when Hillary Clinton gains in the polls, it seems like one month gold volatility has fallen a, a little bit. Why, why do you think that is? When, when, when you see the lack of volatility, when you see the lack of movement with regard, is, is that surprising to you? I think any gain in the polls um, uh, for, for, for the leader would probably tend to reduce the volatility because that would be one less thing the market would, uh, uh, would, would be uncertain about. So um, I don't think I – th- I think if it were much closer, the vol would probably, would probably be higher. James Steele, when I look at the chart, and I know you're not a technical analyst, but um, do you have the sense that gold has broken through support or is the rally still intact, which nicely started the end of 2015? Uh, that's a good question. Um, uh, it's taken a real uh, uh, dent. Uh, there's absolutely no doubt about that. We had uh, a quite significant uh, uh, technical selling when we got down to 1310 uh, to yeah. 1300, and then again down around uh, 1259, mm. uh, the, the more recent low. Uh, if you look at uh, a rough 50% retracement from the beginning of the move around, say, if you put it at 1045 uh, in December, as you highlighted, up to, say, 1375, uh, then that would be around uh, 1210. And uh, I think the market uh, uh, will hold well, well above that because uh, – well, yep. I don't, mean, I don't mean to interrupt, but, I mean, we go through to 1250 or 1260, and support is 1060. Do you look at this as a pullback and a break of the James Steele rally, as it's known worldwide? Or do you look at this as we may, we may test that 1060 level, and as the gloom and doom crew say, we migrate back to eight $900 an ounce? Uh, yeah, no, I don't think we will uh, break down to those levels uh, 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 at all. Uh, I think monetary policy still remains uh, too loose. Uh, we have negative interest rates outside of the U.S. and no real sign that that's going to, uh, that's going to reverse. Um, and also, you know, uh, the, the Fed rate rises are clearly well telegraphed, and uh, we're only looking for very modest ones. So I think that might be already somewhat digested into the absor- absorbed into the price. So no, I don't see a major um, uh, decline of that of that magnitude. I see it staying well north of uh, 1,200. James, I look at the the growth of gold-backed ETFs inflows. I think north of, of 27 billion dollars. Uh, and I wonder what effect that's having on the on the marketplace. How much that's changed the 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 contours of the gold marketplace right now? It's been one of the most bullish. It's probably the most uh, bullish development on uh, market wise that we've seen um, in years. Uh, it's absorbed a great deal of gold. Uh, you know, without going into uh, uh, the merits of, of of an ETF necessarily, but it. It gives you a good way uh, to hold and store gold, which before people would tend to go to coins and small bars or, or equities, and this gives them, uh, you know, an, an alternative if they if, if they choose to do so. And it's built up considerably. Um, uh, what, one of the things that's interesting, I'm glad you mentioned the ETFs, because although the net COMEX positions, the net long COMEX positions have come down considerably with this with this drop since the high of 1275. Uh, the ETFs have been very firm. James Steele with us. We've been getting tons of mail, as always, on his gold call. James, you have to live within the milieu of uh, a major shop, HSBC, 
And it's not that you love to make outlier calls. It just happens to be where you guys are in Sterling now. And on the duration of low yields, how does Steve Major's bond call, low yields out to 2021, as far as the eye can see, how does that fold into your work on gold? Or are you and Mr. Major not on speaking terms? <laughs> Oh no, we certainly are now. Now um, uh, we try to uh, be aware. Well, we are, we, are, we are aware of of, of everybody's views. Um, uh, we discuss things, and uh, uh, his view about uh, low rates uh, going further out, which have been, you are gracious enough to say, have have been uh, uh, correct over for, for many 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 quarters now, um, is supportive of of the gold price uh, uh, without without doubt. It lowers opportunity cost of. Owning gold, it makes it easier to uh, uh, to own gold um, as a comparatively safe uh, safe haven. Um, there's many uh, positives uh, uh, that uh, low interest rate environment have uh, for gold going forward. So it it, it helps secure and gives us uh, an economic and uh, and good rationale uh, for our, for our views on bullion. James, I'm looking at, at, at the dollar, the strength of the dollar, and I wonder the degree to which that's, a, that's affecting gold will continue to affect gold. What's your forecast there in, in terms of how the dollar relates to gold? Well, um, we do have uh, the dollar uh, weakening slightly uh, uh, to the euro uh, by, uh, by year end. Uh, recently, it's, it's, it's been stronger. So uh, our currency view is uh, neutral to slightly supportive of, of gold. Um, the big issue, of course, has been the reaction of the pound, uh, which has been down uh, sharply. And, and, and I think there's two ways to look at that for gold, actually, because when, you, when we first got the vote on Brexit, um, uh, the gold market jumped. Uh, it jumped not necessarily because of currency moves, but more because of um, uh, the geopolitical risk associated uh, uh, with the, the, the uh, U.K. leaving the E.U., uh, so in this case, although generally speaking, a weaker pound would be uh, a big negative for gold, it might not be so much the case this time. Uh, that's, that's the interesting thing about the gold market is you have to balance many other things out. And although currencies uh, generally have the dominant uh, uh, impact on gold, you have to look at why the currency is moving as well. When you look at Brexit, when you look at the uncertainty over when that might take place, how, how much of a complicating factor is that? Well, I think as far as gold is concerned, a lot of it has already been priced in. It was priced in very quickly with the rally when, when, the, vote, when the vote came through. Uh, we'll have to see how, how things progress. But uh, uh, right now, I think it's mostly in the gold market. And yeah. uh, the gold market will tend now to look towards Fed, ECB, Bank of Japan policy. Frame for us the elasticity or responsiveness of jewelry to the price of gold. I mean, an ounce of gold. How t how tight is that? Uh, that's where, um, again, this is very interesting because um, it is split pretty much in two halves. Um, jewelry demand in the West uh, does not appear to be incredibly price responsive, um, mostly because it's a function of income. Uh, uh, higher incomes mean uh, more spending on luxury goods, and you don't tend to see a big movement uh, in jewelry demand either way because of uh, price movements. It tends to be more related to income and, and also to employment levels. Uh, now, in the Far East, where the margin on jewelry is much, much lower um, and there's less discretionary income, it's much more sensitive. And I think that's why, alluding back to our earlier conversation, 
why we're probably going to see a, a, a nice physical response uh, from the Chinese merchants when they, uh, as they as they get going again after after Golden Week, they'll they'll be greeted with a substantially low, lower price. And the lower price now is finally beginning to kick in and encourage Indian demand, which has been off the radar for many months. But it's going to come back, you're suggesting? I do think so, uh, moderately. Um, uh, more, more ch- I think the, more of the growth will be in China. Um, the, but the Indian demand, I think, will be up as well. The monsoon was good this, uh, this year, which might sound an odd thing to say, but uh, a lot of gold is bought in the northern tribal belt and is dependent upon rural incomes, and rural incomes in, in turn are dependent upon the harvest. And the monsoon... Yeah, um, the good harvest. How oh, maybe this is a naive question, James? When you talk about gold sales in China, how open a marketplace is that? How much government intervention is there in the the gold market in China? Uh, it's quite open. There have been reforms that have uh, uh, taken the government uh, uh, out of that, stemming back uh, uh, years now. So it's uh, uh, relatively right. open as far as that, as far as that's concerned. James Steele, uh, congratulations again on killing the gold call here in the number of months and. Certainly the shift there is very important. Mr. Steele is with HSBC. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. I'm David Gurr with Tom Keene. Bank of Japan Governor Harihiko Kuroda sat down for an interview with Bloomberg over the weekend and gave the clearest signal yet that it may take longer than initially forecast for the BOJ to hit its 2% inflation target. We don't... (laughs) I intend to exit from uh, extremely accommodative expansionary monetary policy at this stage. We will continue or even strengthen our uh, monetary easing in uh, coming months and years to achieve 2% inflation. And uh, for the time being, as I said, uh, 80 trillion yen uh, assets purchase would, uh, would continue. Kuroda also made it clear he'll continue to support a strong stimulus program responding to the idea of curbing monetary easing with a laugh. We are joined now by Takatoshi Ito, professor of international and public affairs at Columbia University. Professor Ito, let me ask you, first of all, just about what we heard from Governor Kuroda over the weekend, both yes. at Brookings and in this speech. Uh, you've written a note about the, the uh, inflation overshooting commitment, calling it epic-making. Why is that the case? Yes, uh, this um, overshooting uh, commitment is, amounts to the uh, what we call uh, the price level targeting in the literature, which means that um, uh, the Bank of Japan commits to um, uh, offset any deficit in the price levels, not achieving 2% in the uh, years after they tar- uh, hit the 2% target. So 2% is now not the uh, goal. But the um, uh, average of the two percent over the medium term is uh, to, uh, is the target. So this is very strong commitment that the easing will continue. So by delaying the uh, forecast of achieving two uh, percent target date, they supplemented it with a very strong commitment on the afterwards after hitting two percent. It's going to break. To, uh, to upwards, maybe 3%, maybe 4%. Professor, you know, we, we have another delay seemingly from the governor saying that this would not take effect until uh, 2018. This is the, f- the fifth delay that we've seen. What do you, what do you make of, of the near constancy of these delays? 
Well, it's um, a combination of factors, uh, some of them are beyond the BOJ's control, namely uh, oil prices uh, continue to be low, and the uh, domestic uh, uh, labor unions are not demanding uh, uh, wage increase, so consumption is subdued. So those are the miscalculations or misforecasts. Mm-hmm. But now we are seeing that oil prices are going up, and um, uh, finally, that um, I think the labor market in Japan is almost right. full employment. So they, they, they've been a good position to achieve. Professor Ito, I'm sorry to remind you that it's been 26 years since you crafted your must-read book, The Japanese Economy, that at the time all of us read cover to cover. You then went on with Barry Eichengreen and Charles Weiplotz to look at international mm-hmm. economics. Please explain to our global audience, as you were shortlisted for Mr. Kuroda's job, please explain the independence of the Bank of Japan in modern deflationary Japan. How independent is uh, Mr. Kuroda? Uh, it is uh, very independent. I think um, uh, BOJ is as independent as uh, Federal Reserve or ECB or BOE. Um, I think all, all those uh, four major central banks are now under pressure, and uh, the QE and zero interest rate or negative interest rate, all of them seem to uh, have failed achieving 2% very quickly. So now people are talking about the coordination between monetary policy and fiscal policy, which mm-hmm. to some people sounds like uh, losing independence. But I do not think that is losing independence. I think it is, uh, you know, coordination right. of equal terms. You took your doctorate at Harvard with Professor Blanchard, yes. Olivier Blanchard. He has been critical of modern macroeconomics and how we're going to do economics forward. What would you like to see from the Bank of Japan in terms of a new strategy, given the assault on so-called dynamic stochastic general equilibrium theory? What would, what would you like to see out of your Japan economics as your professor is critical of modern macro? Well, actually, I took a course from uh, Janet Yellen, not uh, Olivier Blanchard. But that aside, um, I, I think the um, dynamic stochastic generic equilibrium macro uh, has not proved that uh, they, they are relevant in analyzing the uh, uh, current situation, uh, especially for the uh, an- an- analyzing uh, global financial crisis of 08 or 09. I think the DSG model that central banks do have, uh, but as one of three or four macro models. So um, uh, DSG is very uh, useful in analyzing how the uh, individual sectors, in, uh, like households and, and mm-hmm. corporations, would react to a uh, policy changes. Uh, uh, that's more deep parameter, long-term uh, effect, and they, they fail to um, uh, analyze, right. um, you know, very short-term phenomena like uh, unemployment or uh, underutilization of the resources. Professor Ito, thank you so much. Takatoshi Ito of Columbia University from Morningside Heights this morning. He, of course, has visited in the studio before. A real honor to have him in uh, after uh, Francine Lacroix's interview 
with Mr. Kuroda. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.